You turn, if you would, turn with me to the psalm we just sang together in your Bibles. It's Psalm 23. If you're following along in the Bibles provided on the seats in front of you, they're found on page 428. I have to say, as you know, this is perhaps one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. As we journey through the Psalms, we just happen to come to this one that so many are so familiar with, and even unbelievers, even often those who have rejected the church, can quote even parts or sometimes the whole psalm. Now, why are the words of this psalm such a comfort? And do they apply to everybody? Why should they bring comfort, especially to a believer? Well, follow along as I read the words and as we ponder them and look at them together this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As we consider these words given by the Holy Spirit to David to write to us, Let us bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words, such a comfort to many, such a majestic poem of your loving care for your people. I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it. I pray that you will give this word to us not only to comfort us, but to cause us to grow in your grace. We pray all these things according to your purpose. And I pray that any words spoken that are not consistent with your own shall pass away and never be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. Somewhere in the technological universe of our home, whether it's on a computer or a tablet or a drive of some sort, I have a video of my children about 10 years ago feeding a lamb from a baby bottle. A rancher near our church in South Dakota invited us to come out and look at these lambs that needed to be hand-fed. And this video shows my children holding a baby bottle and an eager lamb coming up to drink the milk from that bottle. Now, it's really kind of a funny video The lambs are quite eager, even so much so that the kids are a little taken aback at first. But then the children are loving it, and it's it's just a, a joyful moment in that video. But it was a reminder as all of these things took place, without the care of that rancher, those lambs would have died. You see, the sheep are rather helpless animals. I'm sure if you've studied this passage before, you've read books about how they're none too bright either. And though we don't call the modern rancher a shepherd, those sheep needed shepherding 
in order to live. Now, as David writes this passage, he's indicating or implying that he and the reader who might use these words in his own faith are sheep. That means we are vulnerable, we are ignorant, and we need leading. As Psalm 95 says, we are the sheep of his pasture. But the two pictures that are given, one is of a shepherd. So Yahweh is my shepherd is the first four verses of this particular illustrative poem. But the second picture is much different, but yet also contains much the same meaning. The last two verses describe Yahweh as our host to a great banquet. But first of all, David says, the Lord, or Jehovah, Yahweh, is my shepherd. By saying this, he says, first of all, the Lord is my personal, physical provider. That is, the, need, that the needs I have physically, he will provide. And so when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, he includes this phrase, I will lack nothing. I have to say, how many times when we first learned this psalm as children, we heard, we hear the words, I shall not want, and we think, well, why wouldn't he want the Lord if he's the shepherd? But the idea here is not want as in, I shall not desire to have the Lord as shepherd. The idea is, I shall lack nothing. That is the Hebrew word here. And for a poetic sense, the English is translated, I shall not want. In other words, because the Lord is my shepherd, I will lack nothing that I need. In fact, he will give me things that are so valuable and important. And here he describes some of them. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now the word here is for fresh green grass. And of course, if you know anything about the land of Judah and the Middle East you know that you can't take that fresh green grass for granted. In fact, in the summertime, in the fall time, you really had to search for it. In the winter and the spring, sometimes there would be, even on the areas that were rather barren, there would be a, a, at least a cover of some sort of grass or foliage for the sheep to eat. But in the other times, you would have to search it out and find the right valleys or the right places where there were places where the sheep could actually, in comfort and without pressure, lie down in green grass and be provided the fodder that they needed. And so here he says, even that the shepherd provides. Of course, what happens if he doesn't? The sheep starve. Then the next thing he says, he leads me beside still waters. The idea here is this is calm water. This is not water running down the hillside to such a degree that it will agonize or cause anxiety in these sheep. Because after all, this is restorative water. It is water in a, in a well or a hole or something like that where the sheep can be calm and relaxed and not have all kinds of problems to lead them to go astray. And here it is, this physical provision of both food and water. 
And of course, we take that for granted so often here in the wealthy, rich United States of America. How many of you today are going to wonder if you'll have water at home? How many of you are going to wonder if there's any food to eat? How many of you are going to wonder if there's some way in which that will be provided? Now, there are some amongst us who are like that. And yet, here it says, the Lord, as a shepherd, provides for our physical needs. Of course, Jesus says much the same thing, doesn't he? He says, why why are you anxious about these things? The Lord will provide them. It doesn't mean that it will be always at our timing or in our way or in the experience that we want. Maybe we're not going to have the high sugar content foods we like so much. Maybe we're not always going to have water that's as clean as we would like. But God is the provider and he will care for his people. But perhaps even more important than the personal physical provider is the fact that he describes the Lord as his personal spiritual provider. For verse 3 begins with this phrase, He restores my soul. He is the soul restorer. Now, what does it mean to have your soul restored? That's kind of interesting. This word is actually from the family of verbs that means to turn. There's a different tense here or a different uh, idea contained in this particular Hebrew word because this particular aspect of turning means to return to its original state. To restore his soul, in essence, is to restore it to the state that God had given it. God didn't create us sinful our souls, and yet because we are human beings descending from sinners, we are by nature sinful, and we have original sin in that way. And so everything we do, remember Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is no one righteous, no one who doesn't sin. Because of that, it is our nature to be sinners, and sin taints us. We have guilt, we have shame. We have all the things that come with sin and all the consequences that come with it. And when the Lord leads us to the physical provision of food and water, as we lay beside these still waters, figuratively, he restores our soul. That is, when we rest in him and his provisions, he brings us back cleansing us from our sins and making us in a right relationship with him. It is restorative. In this essence here, we know that poetically, David is not saying he's a sheep, literally, but he is saying he is in the sheep pen of the Lord and by God's grace as he provides for him, there's much more meaning than just the physical food and water. This is the spiritual food of the word of God and the spiritual water of life that comes and cleanses us and restores our soul. Our soul is cleansed in the calm water and our sins are forgiven. And then he says this, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This spiritual provider provides not only restoration, that is restoring our soul from the turbulence of sin now to the calm, restorative aspects of God's grace, 
But now he's going to guide us to righteousness. And of course, here, he leads us in these paths. The word paths is such a fascinating word. It means wagon tracks. You see, what the shepherd is doing is he's not wandering around without knowing where he's going. He's using a well-worn track to provide for the sheep. And he's guiding them in a specific direction, clearly and directly, to his goal. And of course, for David, that goal here is righteousness. And again, how important is that for the man or woman of God? It is completely necessary. You see, without righteousness, we do not have life. Without righteousness, we cannot enter the gates of heaven. Without righteousness, we can't be in the presence of God. And so when he leads us to the tracks, by the tracks, to righteousness, what is he doing? Well, we know from the New Testament exactly what he's doing. We know from Isaiah exactly what he's doing. Because it says in Isaiah, the Lord is our righteousness. And we are reminded in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. So this spiritual shepherd is leading his people directly to the keeper of the promise of life. To Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. He leads in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. You see, this is the honorable reputation of the shepherd. You see, he doesn't lead them just so that the sheep can feel better. He doesn't lead them just because he's paid a salary to do this. No, he's the shepherd who owns the sheep. The sheep are his, and he does this for the sake of his glory. It is for his glory as a shepherd and a caretaker and one who has promised to keep his children, his sheep, and to do so with care. You see, as Jesus will say, that Will read about this morning in John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's not just a shepherd. He's not just a hired hand. He is the good shepherd. Why is he good? He's good because he provides for all the sheep's needs and he provides also for their restoration and their righteousness. He is the personal, physical, and spiritual provider. But he's also the protector, isn't he? Here's verse 4, one of perhaps the most meaningful verses of all of this, and people rightly or wrongly apply it to their own lives, rightly if they're believers in the Lord, wrongly if they are not. It says here, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The word here, valley, can also be the word gorges. You know what it's like in In that area, if you've ever been there, I have not. Some of you have traveled to the Holy Land, and you understand that it's a rocky terrain. It can be very treacherous in places. And sometimes as those shepherds would take their sheep, there would be places where they would want to lead them to some of those places with calm water or fresh green grass. But it might be treacherous and dangerous. And in order to get to those places, there would be danger, wouldn't there? And then, of course, the word here, the shadow of death. It's a compound word in the Hebrew. Shadow, 
and death put together and, and kind of mashed together as one word to remind us there is deep darkness or great danger, even death danger in this place. And as he's leading these sheep through that territory, there are places in valleys or beside the gorges or cliffs in order to provide for his sheep where if he doesn't provide the right direction, those sheep will be in danger. And of course we know, this is also poetic, isn't it? When we talk about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what are we talking about? Those dark times in our lives. Those times sometimes where it looks like nothing good can happen. Where it looks like perhaps death is knocking at the door. It looks as if perhaps we will slip and fall, maybe not physically, but at least mentally or spiritually into such a, such a ravine that we will not possibly survive. But what does he say about it? Even though I walk through that valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's without fear. Now, one of the important things to mark here is it doesn't say there won't be evil. In fact, it's very clear that as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there is evil because you're not going to fear it. In essence, he's reminding us that we live in a sinful world and the consequences of sin are such that there are evil things, evil people, evil circumstances in which we could fear and be anxious about. It would be terribly irresponsible of a pastor or a spiritual leader to say, if you are a sheep in God's pasture, nothing bad is going to happen. Or if you were to say, you're not going to get sick sometime, or you're not going to face adverse circumstances sometime, or you're not going to have bad relationships sometimes, or sometimes there might not be a situation where your life is threatened because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It would be terribly irresponsible to say those things, but it would also be terribly irresponsible to tell a believer that in those circumstances you're on your own. Because what does scripture say? Why would we fear no evil? Because he's there. Because he's there. That doesn't say because he's there, then then every wound will be uh, bound up right in that moment. It doesn't mean that it's it's always going to be uh, such a sweet understanding of his presence that we're we're not going to feel any hurt. It, It does not mean that at some point in our lives, we're going to come to such an understanding and such a tranquility and peace in God that nothing will seem to harm us. It means here that he'll walk with us. He'll be with us. He knows about it and he cares. You are with me. In other words, you are present. You see, this is the great promise of scripture, isn't it? The promise that at some point will be restored to Adam and Eve in the garden who walked with God in the cool of the day. We'll be like the Israelites in the desert that though danger surrounded them, God's presence was in the cloud and the pillar of fire. 
We are going to be like those disciples who were anticipating the things that Jesus was saying and they didn't understand them all, even in that anticipation. And Jesus kept telling them again and again, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to depart from you. And then he died on the cross, but his promise was this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are present, David says. He doesn't say, hey, life is going to be hunky-dory in a bottle or a, a, a bed of roses. He says here, when these hard things come, when these difficult times seem overwhelming, when death is knocking at my door, you're present with me. Not only that, but God is ready to act. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What does the rod do? The rod is what the shepherd takes with him in order to club his enemies. You know, the lion or the bear or whoever it is. Those animals that even David in his experience as a shepherd remembered when he came to the, to the army and he saw Goliath and he wanted to go conquer Goliath. And, and the king said to him, you know, basically you're young, you're inexperienced, you need armor, you need all these things. And David said, well, when I was a shepherd, God was with me. And I was able with my hands to defeat the lion and the bear. Because he had a rod, a club. And by the strength of God within him, he was armed to club those enemies. Just as in a certain way, God allowed the stones of David to knock down the giant Goliath. But the other thing is the staff. What is the staff for? You know, we see the picture of the shepherd with the staff, especially at Christmas time and when you have a living nativity or something like that. You have these guys standing there with this, this uh, uh, staff that has a little crook on it and so forth. And, and, and what is it for? Well, it's to control the sheep. You see, while the rod is out there to club the enemies, the staff is in the hands of the shepherd in order to control the sheep at times, even to hook those sheep and get them to go the right direction. The problem is these sheep don't know what they're going, and they're rather rebellious at times, and they want to go off on their own. And so one of the reasons in which David describes how he should not fear Evil is this. God will conquer and has in Christ conquered evil, even death itself and Satan. But on the other hand, he has to control us. You see, we're so ignorant and stupid. We want to go our own way. We want to do things our way. What is it that Frank Sinatra used to sing? I'm going to do it my way, right? And we're Americans. We love to do things our way. We want to do things our way in our families. We want to do our things uh, our way in all of society and culture. Why is it that we have all of these crazy ideas out there that we can be whatever we want to be and do whatever we want to do? It's because of our sinful nature. We're stupid, ignorant sheep that say we just want to do things our way. And yet, time and time again, the Holy Spirit uses the scriptures, doesn't he, to convict us of our sin and to turn us to go the right way. 
Time and time again, he causes us to be convicted by our conscience of doing something wrong so that we can stop the direction we're heading down towards destruction and be set on the path of the wagon ruts to righteousness. The shepherd is ready to control us who wander so much. And because of God's ability as a shepherd, both to conquer the enemies and to control his sheep, he's a comfort to us. Isn't that a comfort to know? That even if you have a church that's going down the wrong direction, even if you have a pastor and its leaders who have have done amazingly ridiculous things, even if the people in your life that you have looked up to the most, maybe your spiritual heroes have fallen, even in all of those things, God is the one in control, not them. God is the one who will direct his sheep on the path. God is the one who will conquer the enemies. I remember years ago, we had a friend named Dan, who was an MTW missionary to Japan. Dan had a large family. In fact, they even did a television show one time in Japan because of his large family. They were shocked because it's very unusual in Japan to have large families. And they came in and they did this show and they would show in the Japanese language these things. We saw clips of it. It would be like, whoa, look at this family. And when his boys were young, they wanted to play baseball. And if you know Japan, baseball's a little bit popular in Japan. So they began to play in the Japanese Little League teams. But these boys, especially the one of them, it quickly became apparent that not only was his son an outsider because he was a foreigner and an American, but he was also an outsider because there had to be an exception made so that this one player, unlike all the other players on the team, would not have to bow down to the field and to the other gods associated with baseball. You see, in Japanese culture and religion, it's much more a corporate understanding of life. It is unusual, uh, it was especially in that time, to buck the trends of what everybody else was doing. There was a sense of groupthink there. And so much of the Eastern world has a more group or corporate understanding of life than we do. But here we overemphasize the individual. So David and the Israelite society is a little bit more structured under this corporate understanding. And so many times in scripture we hear the words that the Lord is a shepherd to his sheep and we're talking about the nation of Israel. But one of the things I think that is so precious to us as Western Americans, but also pressure to those who live in the Eastern corporate culture mindset, is that David says, you are my shepherd. It's an individual sheep being cared for by the shepherd. It's not just that he will take care of the flock, although he will. It's not just that Christ died for his people, the church, although that is what he died for. It's also, we understand that in a personal relationship with the shepherd. This is why it's such a comfort. The Lord is my shepherd. That's why David can say, in those times of evil and difficulty, You're present. You conquer my enemies. 
The first enemy you conquered is me. In fact, when we say that great catechism question about God or Jesus Christ fulfilling the office of king, we talk about him basically conquering all his and our enemies, including us. We were, of course, his enemies. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. What a comfort that the great shepherd will comfort me, David writes, and the believers believe. That's the first illustration of Psalm 23. The second is in verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my house, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This illustration is one of going into a house where a feast or a banquet is being presented. God is the host in this particular aspect. And it says here, you prepare a table before me. That's what a host is supposed to do, isn't it? That host, after all, if you're invited to dinner, you expect him to provide the food, right? So he, in this sense, is the provider of opulence. This is not just a three-course dinner. This is a multiple-course dinner. In fact, this table is right there in the midst of the enemies. In other words, as he's out there preparing this table and you're going into this home to to eat with the host, you recognize that this house is a marked house because there are enemies all around, at least the enemies of the guest. And yet what is this host able to do? He's able to protect his guests. When it says you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, that shows that either by his power or by the circumstances therein, there is no danger inherent in going to the feast. Isn't this true? When we come to the feast of the Lamb, the Lord's Supper, when we eat together, or perhaps as we anticipate the coming and eating at the Lord's table in his house forevermore, there are enemies around us, aren't there? Some of you have these enemies in your own family who mock your faith. Some of you have the enemies of those who would put down and mock and ridicule the people of God. There are some places in the world even today where they are physical enemies, where someone could come knocking at your door and arrest you or take your life from you because you are at the seat of the Lord's table. But this host is able to protect This host is able to make you prosper. He will anoint your head with oil. This word for anoint is not necessarily the ordinary word for anoint. It means something like to revive or give the fat to. In fact, it's the verb for the noun in verse 29 of the previous chapter where it says all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. In other words, it's a signal that he is in this moment in his house giving you such a blessing that you feel as if you're one of the prosperous people of the earth. Now notice it doesn't say that necessarily when you come into the house. Maybe you are like the bedraggled sheep who's coming in to need to be shorn and bathed and all those things. But here in his house, it will not be withheld from you the things that make you feel special. Your head is anointed with oil. 
And of course, all the blessings are more than you can possibly enjoy. My cup overflows. In other words, is able to more than satisfy you. It's an overflowing blessing that you're getting as you come to this feast. You're not worrying about whether or not there's enough food to eat. You're not worrying about whether or not there's stuff that you will like to eat. It's overflowing and you're made to feel as if you are an extra special guest. And then he says this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now is he saying that because he's gone to this banquet and feast hall? Is he, has he said this because he, he just has felt so extra special? He thinks, boy, the blessings are really going to come now. He says this because the host is not just the host. The host is God. And this is the covenant God. You see, here are the two words. He says, good will pursue me. And of course, what is good? The things that are blessings to us, the things that we enjoy, the things that are just wonderful to experience. But the second word is the word that you hear me talk about all the time in the Hebrew. It's that word hesed, H-E-S-S-E-D, or C-H-E-S-S-E-D, if you want to transliterate it from the Hebrew. It's that word that describes the loyal love of God to his covenant people. It's a word that's only described in relationship between God and his chosen people. The ones that he loves, the ones that he cares for, the ones that will be the sheep of his pasture. And it's in this context that we're we're to understand from David why is it that he's going to have good things pursuing him. Because along with those good things is the loyal, faithful love of a God who has made a commitment to his people that he will never break. And I think it's interesting, the word follow means the word pursue. In a negative context, this would mean persecute. In a positive context, this means to pursue and to follow very diligently to the point that it's almost overwhelming. I think I've mentioned to some of you before, I really did one time get a check from a long-lost relative. I had a great uncle who had, in World War II, married someone from Britain and moved to Britain. I did meet that great uncle, but I never did meet his wife, and I never did meet his one daughter. The daughter never got married, and lo and behold, after my parents were deceased then evidently this second cousin or whoever it was in relationship to me who was a British citizen I'd never met, never really knew or paid attention to in the past, died. And what happened was she had no children, she had no relatives in Britain, and British law said that then her estate would fall into her cousins on her father's side. So her cousins included my dad and his four brothers, and some other cousins. And of course, since my parents were dead, then what would happen was his portion of that as one of the cousins would fall into the four children of him. And so at one point, I got a letter in the mail with a check to say, congratulations, here is your inheritance, basically from your long-lost relative. 
Now, how did that come to my door? Never met him. Never knew this woman in my life. She dies. What that lawyer had to do is they had to be diligent in their pursuit to find these relatives. They had to go through records. They had to contact relatives that they knew about. These contacts would have to give them addresses and contacts for others. They would have to search the records and the law to find those things. And these blessings pursued me until I got that check at the door. The faithfulness of that lawyer in providing for the estate, I think her house was sold. And the proceeds from that house, although it didn't amount to a fortune, they still were a modest, nice little blessing for each one who received these things, but they were only possible by the pursuit of that lawyer. And here is what is the description of loving kindness or mercy, steadfast love, loyal covenant faithfulness. That's what that word describes And goodness, God's blessings, they shall pursue me. I didn't look for them. In fact, so often I'm looking for things that are not a blessing. I didn't pursue them because in essence, my life is like this. Apart from the grace of God, I would pursue bad things to my pleasure and to my glory. But by the pursuit of God's love in my life and his loving kindness to his people, if you have been a sheep in his pen, that is, you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ because the Spirit has changed your heart and regenerated it, making it so that you would believe in him, then he will give you these blessings. He will make you aware of his presence. And then you will understand the pursuit of this good Faithful love of God will never end. These are the hounds of heaven, after all, pursuing us despite our ignorance and stupidity and unworthiness and rebellious nature. God, again and again, for his chosen people, will give them grace. It's not just a feel-good story where Jesus in Luke 15 speaks of pursuing the one lost sheep out of a hundred. He pursues us and continues to do so in order to bless us and faithfully mention the covenant that he has made with us. That word mercy or loving kindness or steadfast love or covenant faithfulness is the marker to show us that it's all about God and his love for us. And then the words, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now it's interesting. The word dwell here might have a footnote in your Bible. Mine does. It says, shall return to dwell. You see, the original text has the word return. It's the same kind of word, the same family from which it said earlier about restoring the soul. This idea of returning to the house is this. When God's mercy and grace pursues us, why does it need to pursue us so diligently and so carefully? It's because we have rebelled against him. And when that pursuit comes, it causes us to come back, to return to God's house. And then transformation will come. You see, I think this covenant 
Loyal love that is pursuing the people of God is a recognition that no one is seeking him. No one is righteous before him. No one is coming to him, but he has pursued us so that God's word would come and transform us from sinners to the people of God. And when it says, I shall return to the house of the Lord, what happens? We reside there forever. We don't leave the house. Now, I don't recommend that to maybe your physical guests of today. You might want to leave, your, leave their house at the appropriate time. But when you're a part of God's household, you come in as a guest. He honors you despite the fact you don't deserve it. He gives you more than you could possibly enjoy. He causes you to be someone who who becomes a part of the covenant family so that, that good things pursue you wherever you go. But in the end, when you return to that house, you never have to leave. You're always a part of the family of God. And so it says, I will return to the house of Yahweh the length of my days. We're there forever. You see, if you're a part of the family of God, this is not a psalm for those who have rejected the Lord. This is not a psalm for those who don't understand the mercy and grace of God in their lives, forgiving them of their sins. This is a psalm to look back on as believers under the covenant of God, knowing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you're a part of the family of God, then this truly is a fabulously comforting psalm, is it not? It lays out our vulnerability. We are totally reliant upon the shepherd and unable to save ourselves from either the dangers of a sinful world or our own ignorance and rebelliousness and the wages of our sin. But praise be to the shepherd of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given under shepherds to feed us now, as Peter says, that they are required to feed the sheep until the great day when the great shepherd shall return. But we also understand it is the word of God and it is God himself as our shepherd who will restore us to himself, being brought into the family of God. And if then you have bowed yourself humbly before the God of glory and the God of holiness and received his grace to restore your soul and to bring you into his house and time and time again to restore you and bring you back, returning to his grace, feeding at the trough of mercy and love of the faithful God, He is with us. He will never let us go, and we need not fear evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful psalm. Lord, the world knows somehow, some way, by your power and grace, that this psalm is an important one and is a comfort to people. But Father, for those of us who recognize we are the sheep of your pasture and who recognize that you are my shepherd, Lord, we thank you for this comfort. We thank you for this grace. And we pray, Lord, that your mercy would indeed pursue us and that we might be transformed to you and conformed to the image of Christ in whose name we pray.